All right, Mark. Uh, so you ready to roll? Should we talk through anything first before we uh, jump into this head first? No, I think I think there's a certain spontaneity that might be lost if we plan things ahead. Hi, this is Jason and Mark with Interman Radio. A free service to thinkers everywhere, demystifying the Bible by asking the questions your neighborhood pastor is afraid to answer. Oh, right. Okay. Hey, you had a. You had a read for us this week that uh, you you wanted uh, you wanted us to do. Is it a new sponsor? What do we have? It, it is a new sponsor. In, in fact, you know, this year because of coronavirus, folks have until July to file their taxes. Yeah, everyone's looking for a few ways to save dollars. A few dollars. I, I said, yeah, is yeah the right one to use it? That is correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everyone is looking for ways to save a few dollars, Mark. But did you know you might be paying too much in tithe as well? Wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Too much in tithes. Uh-huh. 10% is 10%, right? Well, sure. A tithe is 10%, but of what? Oh, you mean like net income versus gross? Gross income? Like net versus, right? Yeah, that's disgusting. I'm talking about Turbo Tithe, the new app that makes calculating your tithe easier <laughs> than filing your taxes. <laughs> but God says to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse market. Right, the, right. The whole tithe. The right. Whole, the whole enchilada. Turbo Tithe helps you figure out how much tithe you really owe <laughs> by accounting for deductions, oh. expenses, and oh. exemptions like mileage traveled to and from church services, uh, cost for fellowship meals, even a portion of your housing expense if you use your home office for Bible study or prayer time. Many of our users actually find that their local congregations owe them. You know, you've piqued my interest. Going off script a little bit here, Mark. This is highly interesting, isn't here. it? Yeah, this. Is, <laughs> but doesn't God love a cheerful, cheerful giver, though? I mean, I feel a little bit guilty using it, even though it is somewhat appealing. Yes, He does, and that's why TurboTithe includes the new Count Your Blessings feature, which reallocates the money you saved in tithing to your savings goals. You watch your monthly progress toward that new RV or family vacation while being sure to pay tithes of all that you get. Awesome. Uh, Wait a minute. Uh Doesn't a a family vacation with with tithe money kind of send the wrong message, don't you think? No, no, not at all. In fact, even kids can learn the value of a tithe. And and when you create a, a Loins of Abraham account in their name, oh. that money gains interest until adulthood, ultimately reducing their tithe burden. <laughs> Mark, as, as uh-huh. awesome as this sounds, uh-huh. something just uh-huh. doesn't seem right. Oh, sure it does. Turbo Tithe, 10% made easy. How much did they pay for this spot anyway? <laughs> 10%. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Well, hey, that was great having a new sponsor. Uh, th- that is uh, that seems like a highly lucrative, lucrative sponsor. I don't imagine that they will be out of business anytime soon. Mark. I, I they, doubt probably. it. Probably. We stole them away from Babylon B. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're marching through a series of legit questions or even objections to God in the Bible. And uh, we've had a few of them so far. And uh, recapping some of those, this is where you jump in and you start reading some of those off. Well, let's see. We talked about pain and suffering. Yep. Uh, how it builds character. We talked about uh, how that how was can that episode. Be... That was that entire episode in a nutshell. <laughs> you don't even need to listen to it now, right? Well, it'll save you time. <clears throat> uh, how can there be evil and God at the same time? We talked about that one. Yep. Who made evil? Yep. Or if God made evil, why would He allow it? Um, we talked about. We talked about. 
Can somebody who's a thinking, rational, scientifically minded person or one who believes they are. Right. Uh, that was our, uh, our case for God that wasn't boring, if I'm remembering right. It, yeah, they all run together. Do they from, all kind of? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. okay. Yeah. Can they believe in God? So we talked about that. We talked about, um, we, we talked about what kind of filters are there to the information that we're getting. And, and when we talk about this, these questions, are we really getting the full picture? Uh, it was episode 59. Yeah, and then episode 60 and 61, uh, we asked some of those tough questions of what about genocide and other crimes against humanity in the Bible? Wouldn't, uh, by God's own standards, wouldn't, wouldn't the Bible be immoral yeah. based on that? So we, we, we uh, discussed that stuff. This week, uh, we're, we're putting our brains on hold a little bit, Mark, <clears throat> because Great. You know, the, la- the last five episodes <laughs> have really been a little bit taxing, and, and we really want to just kind of, we're going to cruise through this one with minimal mental effort, okay? Uh, <laughs> As opposed to how we normally yeah, do. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, we're, we're going to talk about the reliability of the Bible, the re- not about the reliability, but the minimal brain on hold. Can a collection of letters, history essays, poetry, and prophecy... All this stuff written at various times over, say, a 1,300-year span by how many authors? Okay, be accurate. 40-something, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of legitimate questions when it comes to the Bible's origins and whether or not it can be trusted. And uh, we're going to tackle some that are the most common. Yeah, what we want to do is is kind of look over some of those more uh, more popular objections that are raised often in contrast to the Bible's reliability. So... Things that come up on a pretty regular basis are, well, the Bible contradicts itself. Yep, or it uh, contains errors. Yep, or it mentions places and people that never existed. Things like, uh, you know, fairy tales and fables. Mm-hmm. Uh, or how we got the Bible. Maybe that process wasn't reliable. I mean, we're sitting here with a, with a modern English translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a long way from ancient Greek and Hebrew. So what did they include? What did they exclude? And how do we know we have what we should have? Yeah, so let's dive right into contradictions. So one of the most glaring contradictions seems to be, or that's brought up, is the sign above the cross. Uh-huh. So people read the account of Jesus on the cross. They look at the sign that's above the cross, and they read John's account, Luke's account, Matthew's account, Mark's account, and they all say something different. Yeah, not one of them perfectly agrees with any other. Right, but that's because actually Mark was written first, and the other one's all copied from but then they added to it later on. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Is uh, that how it works? Yeah. Oh, they... we'll get into that later. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, in Mark's gospel, the sign on the cross reads simply, the king of the Jews. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mm -hmm. Uh, Luke's gospel is close, this is the king of the Jews. And John's gospel, which is typical for John, John's gospel is different than all of them. Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, and John's gospel adds that the sign was written in uh, Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Right. So, so the, quick, the quick answer to that one, Mark, the easy low-hanging fruit here, is that Mark's, Mark's gospel is correct because it's the most simple. The longest one was just people adding to it. You know, so John added to it, so there's other sources there. And the others were iterations in between Mark and John somewhere of various copies and that kind of thing. So, you know, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. <clears throat> who knows? And the problem when people begin to look at what are apparent contradictions is, as in so many cases, their preconceptions determine what it is that they're going to find. Right. So if we went into it, as you said, 
since Mark's gospel is one of the earlier, if we and it certainly is the shortest um, rendition of the cross message, if we went in looking, okay, well, we might, if we started with that idea, we might say, well, well since Mark's was the first or one of them, then the others added to it and, you know, included their own little bit of uh, uh, commentary uh, as to what the, what the sign on the cross said or even what it meant. Um, but all of that is based on our own preconception. It's not based on any particular evidence to back that up. So when people look at the sign on the cross, if they come to, the, to those four accounts and they're looking for a contradiction, well, Eureka, we've found it. Yep. Here it is, four accounts, none of which agrees with any of the others perfectly. So we can say there's our contradiction right there. If somebody comes to those same four accounts, but they're looking for a sign of confirmation, they're going to find exactly what they came to see. <laughs> we found it. <laughs> hey, there's a Ford F-150 that just started right behind us. We, did we mention we're in the garage? <laughs> this is our version of Garage Band. <laughs> Listen to that motor hum. Is that suspension I hear? Bye, Alice. All yeah. right. But Mark, where were we before the Ford F-150 pulled out and Alice, Alice left for work? We're just talking about how people find what it is that they're looking for. And if they come to the scriptures and they're looking for a contradiction, they're going to find one. If they come to the scriptures and they're looking for confirmation, they're going to find that too. Because those differences in the accounts are actually a tremendous confirmation that the accounts weren't the result of a previous collusion. Ah, similar to when uh, a state trooper pulls up on an accident and he starts asking people what happened. People who saw an accident, maybe from different angles. Right, right, right. It's actually a red flag when every person says the exact <laughs> same thing. It's like, wait a minute, there's you guys got together to get your story right here. Exactly, yep. I mean, not that you want people disagreeing on who hit who first, but there's, <laughs> there's, there's, gonna be, there's going to be some variation in the details. Sure, yeah. and notice that that the all of the the elements of importance are the same between the right. four between the four gospels they all identify the king of the jews in that context it's all jesus so there's nothing that is irreconcilable in those accounts right so so taking the accident analogy uh somebody i i, I witnessed somebody rear end somebody else okay and i Maybe the state trooper asks me and I say, oh, yeah, you know, that, that red Ford F-150 was, was on the tail of somebody <laughs> right. else, and they've been tailing him, and they hit him, and it was with a lot of force. Oh, well, the, 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 <laughs> and they were texting on their phone. Oh, okay? poor Alice. So, so, but, you know, somebody else might say, oh, yeah, you know, there was that red Ford F-150, and they hit the guy. Well, they could, th we're saying the same thing. Right. One's with more detail than yep. the other. <clears throat> but if those differences aren't irreconcilable, then we use those. Actually, those are confirmations, not contradictions. So we need those differences. Another thing that people bring up oftentimes are different translations. I mean, we have, not to mention just the versions that are available to us in English. How many versions can you have <clears throat> based on how many translations? I mean, I, I'm no language scholar, but I've played telephone enough that you know, going from one language to another, to another, to another, 
to go from Hebrew to Greek to Latin to, you know, back to maybe to German and right. then to English. I right. mean, we've got a real problem here. And then to American. <laughs> That's I mean, right? And then to American. <laughs> America. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, and which is a legitimate question. People yep. want to know, well, okay, something's got to be lost in translation. That would make sense. And that's really, like you mentioned, the game telephone, That that's our experience. I mean, that really is our experience, that things get radically changed. You get eight people in a circle. Just through eight people, that message is going to be changed. Yeah. And it would be a huge problem for Christianity if we had to depend on every intervening step from the original Hebrew and Greek to English. If we had to place our total trust in the, in the scholars of whatever caliber who did the translations up to that point, we really be up a creek. Thankfully, we don't have to do that because we can go back and check those scriptures in their original languages. We don't have to trust that the German was correct and that the Old English was correct or that the Greek was correct You know, as a translation from Hebrew. We can go back to Hebrew and Greek and make the translations directly into English in one step. And better than that is we have the work of the translators, which can be checked along the way. So our translations are actually increasingly, they're improving over time as we learn increasingly, incrementally better how to translate ancient Hebrew and Greek. We can go back to those earliest ones and compare them Mm -hmm. to other phases along the way. And uh, that's really a powerful tool. It is. There's a really neat project called the Modern Literal Translation Project. It's an open source, um, word-for-word, literal translation, and anybody at all can point out what they think to be an error in translation, and it's reviewed by them, and it's, it's open source. It's out there for everybody, but the idea is that with everyone's cooperation, we continually get a better and a better and a better translation that is increasingly accurate. Increasingly accurate, but no glaring, no glaring changes from what we were reading 20, 30 years ago, right? Right. Yep. All the messages are the same, even the signs on the cross. All right. So we've, we've looked a little bit at uh, contradictions in general. Obviously, we're only giving an example or two of, of each one of these things here. But right. what we're talking about is in principle, these, these um, allegations against the scriptures, they can be answered. And we're just giving an example or two of each. But we've talked about contradictions. Uh, we've talked about uh, uh, potential errors. Yeah, we've also looked at translation. Uh, what about, Mark, the idea that the scriptures were written really— uh, from a from a Jewish centric mm-hmm. type position, and it really can't be trusted because you know, one of the th- one of the uh, hypotheses that's out there is to say, well, especially when it comes to the Torah, that it was really written to help unify the nation of Israel, or some of the prophets, those kind of things. They were really written to help unify the nation of Israel and help them uh, identify themselves, even especially when they were in in captivity. So you really can't count on. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy for any really good information. It, it, it might be somewhat accurate, but it's, that wasn't its goal. Its goal was to, to rally the troops, so to speak, around a national identity. Hmm. <clears throat> it, it would be really difficult, I think, to identify uh, any one group as benefiting um, regularly from the Scripture's treatment of either prophecy or, or history. It's not like it's not like the priests, for example, 
uh, always got a pass. I see. You know, when the priest did something wrong, uh, the scriptures recorded that, 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 nope, that, you know, the priest failed in this regard and the priestly line, um, you know, Eli, for example, mm -hmm. uh, his sons were punished as priests. Uh, Aaron had two sons, punished as priests. Um, so it doesn't cut them any slack. It certainly, it certainly doesn't cut the kings no. any slack. No, even, even King David, no. right? Abraham Murderer. doesn't get a free pass. Nope. Um, even though the Jews identified themselves as children of Abraham, the scripture records his shortcomings. Uh, it, it just doesn't give anybody a, a free ride. Not no, even Moses. Not I mean, even Moses. Yeah. Um, nobody gets a, a free ride. It records all those things, not from their perspective, but from God's perspective. So th there isn't. You'd be hard pressed to find one group that, that has that. And even if it were, even if we ex expanded that out to, like you said, to make it a, 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 a Jewish-centric history, and you know, from their perspective, um, the Old Testament is filled with prophecies that are not Jewish in their orientation. I mean, right. Even as, as early as Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abraham, and in that promise, which is, which is so central to the Jewish nation, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Um, something that the New Testament brings out as being a reference to the Gentile world. Right. You know, all the families of the earth is not Jewish-centered. It's everybody. And that, that occurs over and over in the prophets. Isaiah 49, verse 6, is a great example of this. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. In this case, God is speaking to the Messiah, who is to come seven centuries before Jesus' arrival. He says, It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to preserve or pardon me, to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, that's literally a light of the Gentiles, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That is decidedly not Jewish. Right, <laughs> He's saying the right. Messiah is coming, but it's, it's too small for him just to save the Jews. He's going to be a light to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. And the Jews themselves during Christ's time, when this was explained to them, took great, great offense to that idea. Jesus was not orthodox in, uh, in the way that he went about doing things and, and making the claims that he made about his resurrection. Uh, he didn't shy away from even moving, including the Gentile references from the Old Testament. And that really tore him up. Yeah, and so even in the early church, we see uh, we see that Christians debating over the inclusion of Gentiles into Christianity. So the the, the idea that the uh, the Torah in particular, or, or or any of the Old Testament, was really written as a a Jewish centric document that was a rallying cry for Jewish identity. Uh, yes, uh, much of it does entail the history of the Israelites. Yes, much of it does entail the history of Israelite kings. Events sure. pertaining to Israel as God's chosen people. That is all true. But like you mentioned, uh, there are there is so much information in the Old Testament pertaining to the inclusion of the rest of mankind into God's plan. Yeah. So even even that Acts 15 passage you're talking about, when they're when the New Testament church is deciding what to do about the Gentiles, the way they solve that Old Testament. That's prophecy. right. Exactly. Yep. Going back here, what we're really saying is that if someone believes that the scriptures were written uh, with a bias 
towards a certain group of people, whether it, maybe it was commissioned by the kings of Israel. Well, yeah, right. it's, it's not very flattering to the kings. <laughs> no. Maybe maybe it was commissioned by the priests. Well, mm. it's not very flattering to them no. either. And those would be two groups of people who had the ability to commission the writing of the scriptures. Maybe it was commissioned by Moses himself. Well, you know what? It shows there's a lot of uh, for, shortfalls of, yeah. of Moses written by Moses, which is really interesting. So I think you can make the claim legitimately that the scriptures really do portray history through God's lens, not the lens of one group of people over another. If I'm going to tell the history of America from an American-centric standpoint, I guess it depends on, on what angle you're coming from. I mean, today it's real popular to say that everything America has ever done is evil, right? So, right, right. Uh, but there was a point in time when everything that America ever did was great. Yep. You know, so so depending on whatever axe you had to grind, uh, America is, is, you know, the history of America is going to reveal that. In the scriptures, we don't really see any particular angle uh, uh, placed above any other other than an overarching plan of God to redeem all of mankind. And that is really the thing that draws the scriptures together. And it's the thing that gives us tremendous confidence that what we have in the scriptures is really the work of a transcendent God. Yeah, this idea that uh, the scriptures, in particular the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch or the Torah, can be really uh, can be attributed to one group over another was encapsulated in a hypothesis that was real popular in the 20th century. It started falling apart towards the end, and we'll talk about why in a second, but that was called documentary hypothesis. And that sounds impressive. Oh, I know. And in fact, you know what? If you say it, if you say it in, in, with a British accent, you sound smart. Here, let's try it here. I, I got this little tool online I just found. Uh, let's type this in here. This episode will include some cheeky humor. <laughs> no, not that way. <laughs> let's see. Wait. Uh... Let's see. Try this. That, that sounded very intelligent too. Yeah. <laughs> let's try this one here. Let's try. Let's see. Let's see if we can get to pick this one up. Here we go. Ready? Okay. All right. Mark Miller is a bloody genius. Yeah. Yeah, that's smart. Mark Miller is a bloody genius. Yeah. Wait one more time. I need a ringtone. <laughs> yeah. Can I forward that to my wife? <laughs> okay. Here we go. Documentary hypothesis. Here All right. We go. This is gonna sound so smart. Okay. Here we go. I'm ready. Documentary hypothesis. Ooh, hypothesis. Do documentary hypothesis. hypothesis. Yeah, here we go. I feel smarter even when I say it that way. I, I hypothesis. do. Hypothesis. Yeah, we should just drop all the show notes into this little thing and <laughs> have the whole thing done in British with a British accent. <laughs> in British. In British. Do you speak British? <laughs> no, that's ridiculous. Here we just like sorry. I gotta do, I gotta do this whole. Just, just, uh, we gotta t we gotta paste this in here. This is not wasted time. I don't this speak is, British. Mark Mark fill the fill the. Fill the episode. We got one. that one. Okay, ready? All right, here we go. Okay. D. Documentary hypothesis, one of the models popular in 20th century. A subset of source criticism. Claims the first five books of the Bible is a compilation of four independent writings. Ah. Wow. D. Documentary hypothesis. Okay, we got it. That's good. <laughs> I almost believe that now. That's where were we here? <laughs> we were talking about Documentary yeah. hypothesis. Hypothesis. Documentary. Yes. The idea was is that there was four groups of people who really contributed to writing the Pentateuch or the Torah. Uh, you had the Yahwist, you had the Elohim, you had the Priestly, and you had the Deuteronomic. So whenever there was a passage that kind of leaned towards a priestly message, well, clearly that was a group of priests that had written that because that they, sounds reasonable. Yeah. So so they I the you should see the chart for this hypothesis. By the way, it's kind of a jumbled mess, but the hypothesis fell apart at the end of the 20th century, and really no biblical scholar adhered to it by the end of the 20th century. 
And um, today, though, it's still referred to in pop Bible criticism culture, I guess you'd say, <laughs> as as being somewhat legit. But it's really not. That it's, sounds like a happening scene. Pop yeah, the, Bible criticism culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's on the same channel as aliens gave us the pyramids <laughs> stuff. You know. <laughs> so wow. So that's been discredited. But you know, when I was in college, um, documentary hypothesis was a big deal. So this is in the early yeah. '90s. It was at a Catholic college. And so not only were we, were we studying Q source, which is kind of a it's the mm-hmm. it's the New Testament iteration of documentary hypothesis, I guess. Um, so it's all part of source criticism. But it's it's really to say that, well, the scriptures can't be reliable um, as a, as truth or history. They're great for moral messages. But, you know, it, one person wrote this down, but other groups of people came in and copied it and changed it and that kind of thing. Well, when it comes to the Pentateuch and the Torah, that idea has actually been pretty much discredited by now. And I think it's worthy to note that, you know, though it sounds very scholarly, there's not a shred of physical evidence to back up those claims that there were these, you know, these uh, distinct groups all, you know, inserting or maybe editing uh, portions of the Scripture closer to their heart's desire. Uh, How many groups what their axe was to grind, how they contributed, yeah. and what's, what is, uh, you know, what we can, uh, can refer to their input. All of those are entirely based on the opinions of the guys who did the digging. Yeah, there, was, there was no document to support the documentary hypothesis. That sounds like, that sounds like false advertising. It, it, you it, should I, say, it should be a non-documentary right. hypothesis. It, it really was pulled out of thin air. Here's a verse that makes that seems like it's a priestly message. Oh, there must have been a group of priests who wrote this verse. That's all that is. And so we're right back to where we started. People are finding just exactly what they're looking for when they when they work through the scriptures. Yeah. And based on their preconceptions, lo and behold, they found what they're after. So how we got the scriptures uh, isn't as unreliable as some might might make it to be. So but we'll, we'll get back to that in just a little bit. Mark, how about archaeology? What does well, archaeology have to say about the reliability of the scriptures? Well, so there's a number of ways that the that the scriptures overlap uh, what we might call secular history, um, history that is at least from secular sources, which is necessary if the Bible is going to make good on its claim uh, to be believable. Um, there's a couple of these. There's um, there's the Taylor Prism, for example, um, now in the in the British Museum. Um, uh, there's another one, the Jerusalem Prism, which naturally... Um, Where would that one an, be, Mark? That would be in an Israeli it, okay. museum. Yeah. Written in 691 B.C., and both of those prisms record Sennacherib's attack on Samaria and some other cities in the Israel and Judah Wait, region. Stop. What's a prism? Well... I see life through my prism. You see it through <laughs> your prism. Is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, except these are clay. Oh, um, you be know, hard to see life uh, through those. Yeah, it's a five- or six-sided um, kind of... Uh, is this like an uh, obelisk? Right side. Mm, well, would look. It's more of. It's it's like a, it's like a, five or six sided cylinder. Okay. Um, ah. Covered in clay and then uh, written in in cuneiform. Okay. Um, but the important thing is that th- those prisms, both of them, uh, describe Sennacherib's attack on Samaria, which is a, a an historical event recorded in, in the scriptures, uh, in the book of Isaiah and, and others. <clears throat> but th- what makes those so delicious is the fact that in the early 1800s, 
all of that history had been lost in secular sources. And so, you know, they had misplaced the empire of Ashurbanipal or Sennacherib or Sargon II. And, and scholars at the time thought that all of the places where the Bible recorded the Assyrian Empire, like the books of Jonah or Nahum or um, the uh, Book of Kings, were thought to be in error. Okay, so, so this really is a case where all the scholars of the day thought that the places that the Bible mentioned were fairy tales. They did not exist. It was made up. Right, right. They went from one empire to the other because the Assyrian Empire was rather short, relatively speaking, only lasts about 60, 70 years. Um, all, all mention of it had, had been lost until about 1920 or so. And this guy named Claude James Rich spends four months around the Tigris River on these mounds. And about in uh, working or continuing his work about 25 years later, a fellow named Laird identifies the site and they identify it as the city of Nineveh, ah. it's, it, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which scholars thought didn't exist. Right. <laughs> so now we have a capital of a non-existing empire. But there it is. And the, the mother load was okay. the library. As if that wasn't enough already. This gets better. Okay. There's a, they uncovered the library of Ashurbanipal, one of the, one of the uh, Assyrian emperors, and in it are 100,000 cuneiform tablets of Assyrian and Babylonian history confirming the names that are biblical, like Sargon II, one of Assyria's greatest rulers. So wow. there's the written history. And to say that the Bible is somehow a, a fairy tale or a fable dependent on what was available at the time is, is patently false because here the Bible had the history right. Secular sources had lost it. And I love it. The Bible is confirmed as having been right the whole time. Wow. That, that is powerful. That is especially because you can go back and look at the history of the early 1800s, mid 1800s that would have, that would have called these accounts fairy tales. Yeah. 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 And, you know, to, to just discredit Jonah or Nahum or, or, or the history in the, in the book of Kings <clears throat> because they couldn't find it. And yet... There it was. There it was. Because the underlying assumption is, is if we don't have the information confirmed in a secular source, it's clearly in error. Right? <laughs> That's another presumption. It sure is, isn't it? That yeah. that tends to lead us to the to the conclusion of contradiction rather than confirmation. Yeah. You know, there was another assumption that was real popular until oh, maybe the late late 1940s uh -huh. about how how uh, Isaiah or other Isaiah in particular how, how those scriptures had been changed over time, and that uh, really those prophecies that would prophesy the Messiah really ah, they might have actually even been written after the Messiah. You know, oh, they might have even been very written, clever. Yeah, so you know you can prophesy air quotes something after it already takes place, and you look like a Genius, look right? very smart, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, Mark, what happened in the late 40s to discredit that? Well, uh, in the late 40s, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and, and after, uh, after analysis, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, when compared with what we have of the Hebrew Old Testament, um, in particularly the book of Isaiah, Gleason Archer, professor of biblical languages at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, <clears throat> said that the Dead Sea Scrolls compared with our present-day book of Isaiah proved to be word-for-word -word identical 
with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. And that 5% of variation consisted, he said, chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variations in spelling. What that means is that from 1947, <clears throat> prior to that, about the earliest or the, uh, the, the earliest manuscript that we had available was from 900 A.D., the Dead Sea Scrolls are from 125 B.C. So there's a gap there, if you noticed, of about a thousand years mm-hmm. that, where there was room for scholars to say, well, how can you presume that there's been no alteration, no variation, no loss in the Scriptures from the times that they were written, or, or for instance, in the time of Jesus' day, <clears throat> up to 900 A.D. There's a thousand-year gap there. Right. Well, <clears throat> the Dead Sea Scrolls prove, for instance, that the book of Isaiah had been unchanged for 2,000 years. They, I mean, the, they know that based on the examination of the pottery in which the scrolls were stored, <clears throat> that these were placed in the caves around Qumran, around 125 roughly B.C. That's 125 years before Jesus shows up, Mm -hmm. 125 years before he fulfills any of the prophecies written in Isaiah that describe him in detail. That that cannot be overstated. Because we're looking backwards at, at Scripture's through the lens, really, of the Dead Sea Scrolls in a way, because we're, all the things the Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed were the beneficiaries of. But prior to 1947, there, there was no way to prove that Isaiah in particular and, and the Old Testament scriptures in general hadn't been uh, modified, hadn't been, been uh, edited uh, post-haste to, or you know, post uh, Post-event. Post-fulfillment. Post-fulfillment, thank you, to, to make it look prophetic and, and therefore under undermining prophecy, period. But because the Dead Sea Scrolls are dated where they are and because of their findings, not only does it show that the scriptures haven't changed, but it actually pr- provides an amazing lens through prophecy that legitimizes the scriptures too. It, it sure does, and, and we have, we have a, a, a second... Uh, way to confirm the same thing, and that's a tremendous source of confirmation to us. The Septuagint is huge. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and it's really particularly significant because it's from the third century B.C. So as culture began to shift, Greek culture, you know, Hellenized everything, and uh, a lot of Jews uh, in the Greek uh, in the Greek Empire and afterwards, spoke primarily Greek. Yeah. So they wanted to be able to read the Old Testament in the language that they understood. A lot of them did not read Hebrew. And so in uh, Alexandria, Egypt, which is a huge Jewish center population, they commissioned a Septuagint, or they commissioned the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and they called it the Septuagint because apparently 70 copies were initially made. Ah. That's dated to the 3rd century B.C. It includes all of the Old Testament, all the prophets, Isaiah included, everything is there, all the prophecies about the Messiah are absolutely, positively, without a doubt written before Jesus is ever born. What we learn when we look at the scriptures is we see 
overall there's this there's the hand of God and <clears throat> the reason we can say that is because God tells us at the beginning what it is he's going to do like we talked about earlier the New Testament church appealed to the Old Testament prophets for the legitimacy of the decisions that they made and the um, and the confirmation of what God was doing in their day. They saw their time as a continuity with Old Testament prophecy and what God had been accomplishing from the start. And that's how the scriptures are written. The scriptures are there to point us from the beginning. God says, this is what I'm going to do. He plans it out step by step, and then he, and then he executes that plan. Um, we see that start off from the law of conscience. When Adam and Eve are tossed out of the garden, um, they have conscience. They understand right from wrong. Yep. So nobody can ever come back and say, <clears throat> Lord, if you had only told us, if we had only known right from wrong, we could have got it right. The Lord could say, listen, we tried that, and you didn't do so hot. He takes the next step, you know, and, and we see the flood. And, um, you know, we, we could have done okay. Lord, no, we tried that. The result of conscience w- was the flood. In, uh, then God begins to work to, to, um, to teach mankind righteousness on the basis of faith. And so he introduces Abraham. And through Abraham comes the nation of Israel. And Israel is the, is the, the mechanism through which the priesthood is, is, um, is established. With the priesthood comes the temple and the law, all mm-hmm. of which are moving step by step, closer and closer. <clears throat> the line of kings established through David and his heirs. Finally, all of those things culminate in Jesus, whether it's Abraham, whether it's Israel, whether it's the priesthood, the temple, the law, the kings, all of those point to a single a single key, almost like tumblers in a lock. Ah. You know, Abraham is is the father of the faithful, but Abraham can only be understood through really the lens of Christ in the New Testament. Christ is the substance, whereas Abraham was the type. The nation of Israel, um, what God does with Jacob and uh, and those things, those point to Christ. The priesthood, the ultimate priest, who's not who's not um, prevented by death from continuing, is Christ, the high priest. The temple, Jesus said he is the temple. Destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. The law, which called for sacrifice and, uh, and the, uh, the price for sin, and the shedding of blood, points to Christ. The line of kings given to David, that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever, points to Christ. And then Jesus comes in that context not part of some disjointed history, but a necessary step in the, in, the, in the unchanging and unswerving path of God to accomplish his purpose. And through Jesus, the church, so that the manifold, God, or manifold wisdom of God might become evident to all. And finally, ending in judgment. From start to finish, Jude says, judgment was a part of God's plan from the seventh generation from Adam. And that hasn't changed. One linear history laid out before mankind and accomplished on a scale untouchable by humanity. That plan, that continuity of purpose and transcendence over all history 
is what proves to us that the Bible cannot be the work of human invention. It is the work absolutely of an overarching planner who executes his purpose upon the pages of human history. And we'll, and we'll see, see you next time, time on, on Inner, Inner Man, Man Radio. Radio. Hi, this is Jason and Mark with Inner Man Radio. 